Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. With the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So today we're having our last lesson on adequate anthropology. And while the past several ones, I guess we've tried to be sort of practical, uh, this probably be one of the more, at least theological, if not theoretical ones. I don't think it's probably as theoretical as like the meaning of sexual difference and asymmetrical reciprocity. Um, but we want to look at uh, particularly marriage and sexual difference in the context of revelation. And y'all may have heard some of these terms or will hear some of these terms in your sacramental theology class. So we've already talked about how John Paul II uses the word sacrament in a lot of different ways. A fundamental way that he uses it as a visible sign of an invisible reality. Uh, But what he also does is he talks about that original union of man and woman uh, as a communion of persons in the beginning as the primordial sacrament. A primordial sacrament, basically saying that marriage has existed from the beginning. It was always the intention of man and woman to live together in not the sacrament as we know it. We're going to talk about that, not as one of the seven sacraments, but very primordially a visible sign of a deeper invisible reality. And so even though he doesn't say it, this idea of spousal union of the unity of the two in the flesh, all sort of speak about this reality of marriage. Uh, we've seen, yes? Is the primordial sacrament the, the act or the, just the union? The union, the union itself. The union itself. The act is part of it, but it's the union itself. Um, and, and we've talked a lot about body, sexual difference, union and how important they are to understanding an adequate anthropology and understanding our, our, our sexual ethics. But here we want to focus on this idea, not so much of the primordial sacrament, but of just the reality of marriage that has existed from the beginning and why the idea of marriage is central to revelation. We're talking a lot about why we can't get rid of the idea of sexual difference. It's because of this reality that John Paul II calls, and we're going to call the spousal analogy. Spousal analogy. Now, spousal analogy is not the same thing as the primordial sacrament. It is basically simply that we use marriage, or God has chosen to use the union of man and woman in marriage as a way to describe his covenant with humanity, his relationship to creation. So in Theology of the Body, audience 95B.4, which is the one where he starts really getting into this very complex understanding of sacrament, he says, quote, the analogy of the love of spouses or spousal love seems to emphasize above all the aspect of God's gift of himself to man who is chosen from ages and Christ, literally his gift of self to Israel, to the church, a gift that is its essential character, 
are as a gift total or rather radical and irrevocable. This gift is certainly radical and therefore total, unquote. That's just John Paul II using a lot of words to say just one or two things. Basically, that <laughs> married love and the union of love of man and woman in marriage and everything that comes along with it is this thing that shows to the world God's gift of love to Israel, Christ's gift of love to the church. That we're going to use marriage and the relationship of man and woman in Revelation. God chooses to use it. He says it there at the very beginning so that he could use it throughout Revelation to describe the covenant, the relationship he has with his people. In the Old Testament, we see it particularly in God's relation to Israel, Adam and Eve, as that primordial sacrament. The spousal analogy is reprised often in the prophets, primarily, though, to describe Israel's infidelity to Yahweh. So Yahweh is the bridegroom, and that we have Israel, which he's the husband, and Israel is the bride, is the wife, and what is Israel doing? Running around like a camel in heat, you know? It's Ezekiel right there. That's what they're doing, running around. And so she's committing adultery. How is Israel committing adultery by using the spousal analogy? By going hanging out with the fertility cults and those big lingams that the, the, the Canaanites have. The Baals, the Canaanites, the lingams, the yonis, all that kind of good stuff. That's the problem. No, no, no. You, this is not your husband. Baal is not your husband. I'm your husband. And you're committing adultery. So it uses the, the idolatry becomes adultery because of the spousal analogy. And, of course, probably the most beautiful example of this is in the Song of Songs, where we take a, a, a poem, a love poem, it talks about the erotic love between man and woman and uses it to describe, amongst things, the relationship God has with his church, Israel. So it explains this relationship, but specifically the covenant, the covenant that he has with his people. Now, this spousal analogy runs to the Old Testament, but it jumps to the New Testament because it is that key central analogy to describe a salvation history to describe here particularly what <clears throat> we're going to get into this later because it's have you all got it into the great mystery and sacrament in your sacramental theology class the great mystery so this is central to theology of the body and we're going to look at it the sacramentum magnum, the great mystery of Ephesians 5. We're not going to get into it, what Paul is trying to say there right now. But basically, the great mystery is the relationship Christ has with his church. For all intents and purposes right here, this covenant God has with his people is the fulfillment of the primordial sacrament of Adam and Eve. Because Christ is the new Adam, and the church is the new Eve. <clears throat> it is the it is the great mystery of that relationship Christ has for his church in Ephesians 5. And it helps us to understand what marriage is supposed to be like. And marriage helps us understand what the relationship of Christ and his church is like. 
So the, the prototype, the invisible reality, and, and the idea of our sacramental theology of Christ of the church is made present and real in the covenant between man and woman. In a certain sense, the bodily union of man and woman is taken up and used in description or the love the, of man and woman is taken up and used as a description of the great mystery of Christ in the church. So again, John Paul II is going to talk about this a lot, and we're going to look at it more later, because it's important to understand what marriage is and how to understand offenses against it. But for our intents and purposes here, marriage is used as an analogy to describe the covenant between Yahweh and his people and between Christ and the church. It's a focus on love, gift, communion. I think we, we kind of can understand that. And so marriage helps us to understand this mystical, redemptive relationship. Um, so we talked about the mystery of creation, but John Paul II is also going to talk about the mystery of redemption. Because mystery and sacrament are intimately related. Have you all studied that yet? How they're... Y'all have, yeah. So mystery, sacrament is the mystery that is revealed. And so we have the early sacrament of creation that reveals God's gift and love. And then in Christ, you have the mystery of redemption, of how that love is fully revealed in Christ's gift to the church expressed in a covenant. Okay? <clears throat> I, I struggle whether or not to put the whole explanation of sacrament and mystery first but I really want to wait a little bit later to get into it. It does also point, though, <clears throat> to the importance of this idea of covenant. Have you all studied covenant or covenantal theology yet? A little bit. And again, I'm not an expert in this at all, <clears throat> but it's a word you hear a lot these days in theology, that we understand salvation history through this series of covenants that God makes with his people, ultimately culminating in what? Well, you first you have, like, the Adamic covenant, Noah's covenant, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant on Sinai, which is the, the old covenant, and then the new covenant in Christ's blood in the New Testament. But what is a covenant? And without getting into all kinds of theology, comparing covenant to contract, y'all know this, what is contract? An exchange of what? Goods. What is a covenant? An exchange of people. And so <clears throat> marriage is a covenant two people it's not just a contract where hey I'm, i have things you have things we're getting together with our things no i am giving myself to you and you are going to or you're going to and it's this irrevocable bond this covenant <clears throat> and so the spousal analogy if we understand marriage as a covenant this joining of two persons helps us understand the reality of God's covenant with his people. John Paul II says, Since the human being, man and woman, has been created in God's image and likeness, God can speak about himself through the lips of the prophet using language which is essentially human. In the text of Isaiah, the expression of God's love is human. The love itself is divine. Since it is God's love, its spousal character is properly divine even though it is expressed by the analogy of a man's love for woman. The woman bride is Israel, God's chosen people, and this choice originates exclusively in God's gratuitous love. 
It is precisely this love which explains the covenant, a covenant often presented as a marriage covenant which God always renews with his chosen people. On the part of God, the covenant is a lasting commitment. He remains faithful to his spousal love, even if the bride often shows herself to be unfaithful. Probably could have used that passage there uh, earlier to talk about the idea of covenant and spousal analogy in specifically the Old Testament. But but what about the New Testament? Um, Where do we see the spousal analogy? Well, clearly we see it uh, in Christ describing himself as the bridegroom. Uh, John the Baptist talking about himself as the friend of the bridegroom. There's one analysis, which I find very interesting, and I'm not a scripture scholar, so I don't know what Dr. Vall thinks. When they talk about untying the sandal strap, I am not worthy to untie the sandal strap. What does that, what does that mean? And most of us say, well, it means that, oh, he's unworthy, he's just humble. Well, actually, there, there's something uh, in the Old Testament called the Holocaust rite, I think is, I get it correct, and you see it in the book of Ruth, that whenever Boaz, before he marries uh, Ruth, not Ruth, is he married Ruth? Yeah, he marries Ruth, not, see, I'm not in the scripture. He turns down someone before. He turns down someone before. He turns down his brother's wife or whatever. And in order to do so, he or someone else has to untie a sandal strap as a repudiation of the bride. And so John the Baptist saying, I don't have the legal right to untie a sandal strap because he's not going to repudiate the bride. The bridegroom's going to marry the bride. So you can go look that up if you want to read more about it. The wedding at Cana. Jesus' whole ministry starts at a wedding. St. Paul, the great mystery in Ephesians 5 we talked about, and then finally in the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation. And so now this idea of the, the spousal theology is applied in so many areas, particularly to this idea of the sacraments. Uh, there are a number of books that were published in Italian about 20 years ago uh, by a theologian named Mazzanti, which basically tries to give a spousal interpretation of all the sacraments. Particularly, of course, the Eucharist of Christ giving his body, his blood, in the Eucharist to the church. The church receives it. There's a union and a fruitfulness in grace. John Paul II in Mulier Sintatum 26 you know, talks about this. The Eucharist is the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. But here's the point, y'all, and this is the thing that you've got to understand, and I've already somewhat alluded to it. This spousal analogy, which is using marriage as an analogy to describe God's covenant with Israel and Christ's covenant with the church, is so crucial because it underpins revelation and salvation history. Why did God choose to use this as the primary analogy? I got no idea. He's God. This is what he chose to do. He chose to put marriage at the center of creation in order to be able to use it to describe his love for us. And so because the truth is symphonic, we can't deny the meaning of sexual difference, that somehow sexual difference doesn't matter, or male and female doesn't matter, or the body doesn't matter. Because if all of a sudden you say that that doesn't matter, or somehow 
We can act sexually not in accord with sexual difference, that it's all right just to satisfy yourself or satisfy a member of the same sex. Not only, of course, we say that contradicts the natural law, but it also impacts the rest of theology. Because of all of a sudden, sexual difference doesn't matter, the spousal analogy falls apart because marriage is just what you create it to be. And then God's revelation to humans doesn't really work. Doesn't really work. And this is why we hold tight to marriage, sexual difference, the gift of self, the structure of revelation and redemption of Christ and his church, the mystery of redemption, the great mystery depends upon it. If you get rid of sexual difference, if you get rid of the body and you basically say that doesn't matter or you can put your genitals wherever you feel like you can put your genitals, then it all falls apart. Now, well, Father, you're just putting theology over practicality. No, not really. Not really. And particularly for Christians. Again, the world may not want to accept this. The world doesn't accept the spousal analogy. The world doesn't even accept metaphysics. But this is part and parcel of who we are. This is part of the package deal. And we, as priests and as future priests, have that obligation to try our best to explain it. This is, I think, this quote from Bam Balthazar that explains it better than anything. He says, quote, the natural sexual difference is charged as difference with a supernatural emphasis of which it is not itself aware, so that outside of Christian revelation, it is possible to arrive at various deformations of this difference. For example, a one-sided matriarchate or patriarchate, an underestimation of women, or finally such a leveling of the sexes as to destroy all the values of sexuality. This is all the stuff that we see in the world today. It is only from the indestructible difference between Christ and the church, prepared but not yet incarnate in the difference between Yahweh and Israel, that there is reflected the decisive light about the real reciprocity between man and woman. Yes? I don't know, but I can find it for you. I can find it for you. I think it is probably... Somewhere in the theodrama, but I, I can find it for you. Or you can look it up and put it into Google and find it yourself. But it's somewhere there. Uh, I, used to, I, don't, I don't always know where things are. Basically, but this is what he's saying. You've got to understand man and woman, marriage, salvation, in light of Christ and the church. But... It also goes vice versa. There's a bi-directionality to this, this bi-directionality to this analogy. And so we can use man and woman to understand Christ and the church. But what von Balthasar is saying, Christ and the church helps us to understand marriage. So yeah, we need the analogy to describe Christ and the church, but when we understand what and who Christ and the church is and what that relationship is like, it goes this way. It goes down to help us better understand what marriage is. And so spouses ought to treat each other and behave as Christ and the church treat each other. You can't just throw this away. It is central to our, our understanding of salvation. Any questions about this? 
I mean, I'm kind of beating a dead horse, as it were, but for Christian ethics without revelation and without our understanding of Christ, particularly his relation to the church and in his masculinity that reveals himself as, reveals the father, but also reveals himself as bridegroom, then, then none of it makes sense. It really, our faith has to infuse all that we do, all that we do. But if you don't understand who Jesus is and you don't understand salvation and you don't understand the church, then it's not going to make sense. But what I want to do is spend a bit more time here, or I guess in a certain sense, the rest of the time here, focusing on what I think is in a certain sense a connected but possibly a deeper issue. And I may have talked about this some last year, um, but I'll try to get into it a bit more this year. This importance of the spousal analogy and its relationship to Christ and the church and the new covenant in Christ's blood, yes, helps us to understand sacraments, helps us to understand sexual ethics, but it is also crucial to help us understand ecclesiology. Do you all have an ecclesiology class here? Yes. No. Okay. All right. Is it actually ecclesiology or is it just. Yeah. Okay. So we'll give you a little ecclesiology here. So, again, I don't remember where it was, but Ratzinger once wrote the problem that the church faces today is that so many people say Jesus, yes, church, no. I think it, I think it's in um, Why Am I Still in the Church, that, that essay he wrote. Why am I still a member of the church? Jesus, yes, I love Jesus, but the church, I don't need that. Just me and Jesus, we're walking along, I don't need the church. And there are a number of different reasons, possibly radical individualism, uh, but a lot of it comes with a rejection of the church. Particularly, uh, people don't mind community, but the church as an institution. And, and one of the great books that I loved when I studied ecclesiology was von Balthasar's The Chair of P- the, the Office of St. Peter. The Office of St. Peter. But in the original German, the title is called The Anti-Roman Sentiment. The Anti-Roman Sentiment. And he basically looks at, like, why do people hate the church, particularly the Roman church, besides the corruption, besides all the stuff that people like to point at, and the hatred of patriarchy? And and I'm somewhat, I'm not summing up his argument, but I'm giving you my own adaptation of it, is because, yes, sometimes the church is seen as this patriarchy there to oppress us all and tell us what we can and can't do, a bunch of celibate men there making our lives miserable, or sometimes as an institution, as this big bureaucracy. Uh, And yes, in a certain sense, the Vatican is a big bureaucracy. Uh, A bunch of men, again, just institutionalized, tame beings that are there making papers and writing things and having bunches of meetings. It's not personal, it's not real. Is that true? Yeah, probably. But it doesn't speak to us. But ultimately, he says that the issue, the issue is that the church 
is in the minds of so many people associated with Peter. Peter is the icon of the church. And, and again, that's not necessarily the, 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 a bad thing. Peter is an image of the church. But in my experience, I, this is true, but the problem, at least from the West, or I would even specifically say more in the United States, I think is something different. And this is my own proposition and my own argument. Uh, as much as we're going to get back to this idea of Peter as the, the real symbol of the church, is, is that we see the church, particularly the United States and as Catholics, as something different. And it's hard to understand the true nature of the church, particularly for native English speakers. Tell me why. Put on your thinking caps. Yes. Mr. Zeldin. Bingo! We have a transgender language, a neuter language. No, that's not, 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 not at all. It's neuter. We don't have, unlike many of the Romantic languages and other European languages, nouns that are male or female. It's all the same. So, in every other language, what gender is the church? Female. Ecclesia. Ecclesia. L'Eglise, the Kerka, la Glethia, la Chiesa. I don't care what it is. It's all feminine. It's all feminine. And so when you hear that A, when you hear the A at the end or the D in the German, la, you know that the church is feminine. And so it's easy, therefore, to understand that the church is the bride. And this whole spousal analogy of the church isn't identified with the bridegroom or the male prerogative primarily or some neutered institution. The church is ecclesia, is feminine. Therefore, and again, we know analogies are not always perfect. Who is the real symbol of the church? Mary is. Mary is. The feminine dimension that at her heart, the church is feminine. The church is feminine. So listen to, to John Paul II in Mulier Sinitatum 27. And this is, this is one of, I think, his best quotes. This is of fundamental importance for understanding the church in her own essence. So as to avoid applying to the church, even in her dimension as an institution, made up of human beings and forming part of history, criteria of understanding and judgment which do not pertain to her nature. Although the church possesses a hierarchical structure, nevertheless, this structure is totally ordered to the holiness of Christ's members. And holiness is measured according to the great mystery in which the bride responds with the gift of love to the gift of the bridegroom. She does this in the Holy Spirit, since God's love has been poured into our hearts to the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. 
The Second Vatican Council, confirming the teaching of the whole of tradition, recalled that in the hierarchy of holiness, it is precisely the woman, Mary of Nazareth, who is the figure of the church. She precedes everyone on the path to holiness. In her person, the church has already reached that perfection whereby she exists without spot or wrinkle. In this sense, one can say that the church is both Marian and apostolic Petrine. Unquote. So, Mary symbolizes holiness in the church. And I would also say she symbolizes love in the church. And Peter symbolizes office and hierarchy. Office and hierarchy. So here's a little trivia quote. Here's a little trivia, which may have given you last year too. I can't remember. And all of the writings John Paul II did, and all of the writings he did, the encyclicals, letters, and all the footnotes, he only he only cited one time a living theologian. Who was it, and where was it? Only one time. Of the thousands upon thousands of quotes. No, it wasn't Ratzinger. Pretty sure it was the Hubert, but I don't remember where. Was it during Hubert in his doctoral thesis? No, that was a magisterial document. Oh, that was Balthazar. It's pretty painful. It's what? I said it's not Balthazar, is it? Oh, yeah, it is. And, And it's this quote right here. It's a number 27, footnote 55. All right, y'all. I, well, without, like, again, I, I went to the John Paul II. I studied under a bunch of guys at the Communio School. I like the Communio School. Does any theologian get everything perfect? No. Balthasar missed it on a couple of things. But to discard him doesn't make sense. John Paul II named him a cardinal. Ratzinger preached his funeral. How can this guy be a heretic? He's quoted in a magisterial document. Wake up. I, I don't know. All of a sudden, in the past 20 years, the guy who was named a cardinal has become a heresiarch. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, maybe not, but that's not a good argument because we quote Tertullian and Origen all the time, and Macarius was also a cardinal. Yes, but the fact is. He's being quoted not because he wasn't a cardinal. Ratzinger was he was named a cardinal. He didn't become a cardinal. But why would he have made him a cardinal if he was not solid? That's the point. Even though the other guys aren't saints, Tertullian and Origen are not saints, they're still considered solid. And they certainly Origen got some things wrong, but they're still quoted as fathers of the church. Uh, again, I'm just letting y'all know here that most of this idea of Mary and apostolic Petrine comes from. All of it comes from Balthazar. It does. And this idea, what he calls the Christological constellation. Christ is in the middle, and these figures around him, Peter, Mary, John, Mary Magdalene, James, all symbolize different dimensions of the church. Now, he really gets into this whole idea of the feminine and the masculine and the passive and the active. And there could be a valid critique, I think, of sometimes that uh, he stereotypes, but this is all Balthazarian imagery. 
Listen to what Ratzinger says, though, in this idea of the importance of Mary and the, the, the Marian mystery in the church, particularly in our contemporary society. In my opinion, the connection between the mystery of Christ and the mystery of Mary suggested to us by today's readings is very important in our age of activism in which the Western mentality is evolved to the extreme. For in today's intellectual climate, only the masculine principle counts. And that means doing, achieving results, actively planning and producing the world oneself, refusing to wait for anything upon which one would therefore become dependent, relying rather solely on one's abilities. So he's using the sort of masculine active stereotype. It is, I believe, no coincidence, given our Western masculine mentality, that we have increasingly separated Christ from his mother without grasping that Mary's motherhood might have some significance for theology and faith. This attitude characterizes our whole approach to the church. We treat the church almost like some technological device that we can plan and make with enormous cleverness and expenditure of energy. We're going to have these new programs. We're going to have these meetings. We're going to do these different things. And we're going to change everything. It's going to be great. Then we are surprised when we experience the truth of what St. Louis de Montfort said. I once remarked, paraphrasing the words of the prophet Haggai, when he said, you do much, but nothing comes of it. When making becomes autonomous, homophobic, the things we cannot make, but that are alive and need time to mature, can no longer survive relationships, communities, food. What we need then is to abandon this one-sided Western activistic outlook, lest we degrade the church to a product of our creation and design. The church is not a manufactured item. She is rather the living seed of God that must be allowed to grow and ripen. This is why the church needs the Marian mystery. This is why the church herself is a Marian mystery. There can be fruitfulness in the church only when she has this character, when she becomes holy soil for the world. word. We must retrieve the symbol of the fruitful soil. We must once more become waiting, inwardly recollected people who in the depth of prayer, longing and faith, give the word room to grow, unquote. That's from, that's from Mary, the church at the source. His essay in there, he does another, there are a couple of essays between him and Balthazar in there. That other quote actually may be from that, that little book. I mean, it's just a beautiful quote, but this is it. Mary is the symbol of the church, as opposed to our very activistic, institutionalized, masculine way of looking at things. In fact, he alludes to the fact which the church is not a thing, but a person. We shouldn't ask, what is the church, but who is the church? In his explorations in theology, Balthazar has an essay called Who is the Church? Mary is the Church. Uh, she, she's symbolized, perfected in, in, in Mary. She's feminine. She's the bride. She's receptive. Of course, there's always a major dissimilitude, and the analogy's not perfect, but we get it. But not just the church, but also authority in the church. So both of all, we have office and hierarchy and holiness and love, but the reality is they both symbolize authority. 
Mary has the authority of love and holiness. And Peter has to be seen in relationship to it. This is Balthazar in prayer. The disciples are never guaranteed that Peter's power of the keys and the institutional side of the church will convince and convert people. But love can do so. And whatever it has been, whenever it has been taken literally, it always has done so. The saints who generally loved even succeeded in making the keys seem appealing and in reconciling those who were distrustful of them. For they are the keys to love and must be used in love. One theologian said that Peter's yes to Christ is first, or his yes to, 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 to the church and to serve the church is first rooted in his Marian yes to Christ and receiving the keys, that receptivity. How do we see it, though, in relationship to Petrine authority? So I'm going to give this little thing, which I, I love to, or I've given a lot of before, when I maybe talked about some or alluded to it. When I was in Rome, my ministry was given towards the St. Peter's. Um, I did other things too, but that's what I did. And I came to sort of understand or try to understand St. Peter's and describe it in relationship to a lot of this stuff. Now, mostly because probably I was at the JP2, so I had it in my head, and we talked about nuptial symbolism a lot. But, but for evangelization, for understanding of the church, for understanding the spousal mystery, this is so important. So if you, how many of you have been to St. Peter's? Okay, so you go to St. Peter's, and I remember, I remember the first, you could look at all the books you want, but when you step in for the first time, it, no book, could, no TV show could ever sort of convey the, just the massiveness of it. I remember I used to go in and let people go in for the first time and just give them five minutes to just soak it in. It's completely overwhelming. Did y'all experience that too? Not unless you walk in with your camera like this. No, no cameras. Go in and look at it. And so, but if you go all the way to the back to the apse, you have the, the chair of St. Peter. And this, of course, is Bernini. It's Counter-Reformation. It's Baroque. It's a response to the Protestant denial of church authority and sacramental reality. But basically, you have the, the chair in the middle, and you have the four doctors of the church, Athanasius, Ambrose, Athanasius, Augustine, and Christosom. Basically, it appears to be holding up the chair. You know, a symbol of masculine, petrine, patriarchal authority. These men, these celibate white men, holding up the church, the chair, saying, you will obey. You will obey. Okay. Now, is that the actual proper interpretation? No. Partially because if you understand, you got to understand um, Baroque art. Is this whole idea of Luther's denial of sacramentality that because God was so far above, Luther took Occam from Gabriel Beale. Luther was an Occamite. Did you all know that Luther was a nominalist, and that, that creation was so bad there was this no way God was here, man was here, heaven would never come down to earth. So everything in like this Baroque theology was heaven coming down to earth. 
that the two are connected. The analogy is possible. And so you've got to kind of step back to see St. Peter's. The chair is situated within the overall arc of that famous uh, window of the Holy Spirit. So actually, if you look at it, if you really, if you're up close, the heavens open, poop, there's the Holy Spirit who guides the church to truth. And notice all these clouds. And if you really get close, the clouds, because they're heavier than air, they're more dense, billow down. Billow down. It's a downward motion. The chair is coming from Christ to the church as a gift. So it's not that the apostles are holding it, the bishops are holding it up and saying, you people will obey. No, it's coming down as a gift and they are receiving it. You say, Father, how can you say that? Well, I think you could say it because of the just understanding of what Baroque is, but there's something else that's really, really hard to see, really hard to see, and I may have explained this to you before, I can't really remember, is if you get close, that of the, the four bishops, the four fathers of the church, none of them are actually touching the chair. None of them are touching the chair. Because of the legs, out of the legs of each chair, and it's because there's so much bronze and there's so much going on, you can't see it. There's actually a rope coming out that's in a hook, for, in like, in like, a, in like a, a, a loop form. And the, 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 the uh, bishops, the fathers, have their fingers like this, and they are hooking it through the rope, and like a jet, like Top Gun Maverick, you know, when it they land on the on the the, the airplane car the, the the carrier, it hooks the hook and it stops the plane. So you can kind of see it here. I, I highlighted them. You see the there are the hands. This is the leg of the chair, the legs of the chair, and this rope coming from it. So they're receiving it. They're receiving it as a gift the Marian receptivity of the church. Even the apostles, the successors of the apostles, have to have a Marian dimension. And you say, well, Father, okay, this is great, but what about other stuff, you know, in the, in the church? So I would normally go there and talk about, like, okay, the church, in the, if the church is a home, uh, the house of God, maybe that's like the Father's chair, it's the chair of authority, which comes down as a gift, but you got to step to the Baldacchino. And the Baldacchino, which is, of course, Bernini's beautiful uh, canopy over the main altar of the church, where you have Peter buried under there. Now, of course, canopies have, Baldacchinos have a spousal significance. I mean, you could talk about the canopy of the marriage bed. In the, Arthur, in the Jewish rites, and I still think in the Orthodox rites, there is like a, a can, you're married under a canopy uh, or like a little umbrella or something. Uh, and so, yeah, there are some inherent spousal significances there. I think Gustin talks about it as like the, 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 the nuptial symbolism of the mass. You don't want to push it too far because it's a mystical marriage, but you get the point. But for me, it's important as though that under there, under the altar, is where St. Peter's buried. The bones of St. Peter. Right there, sort of at the center of the church. And the symbol of the, the Petrine authority. Petrine authority. But where is the Marian symbolism then? Where do we see that ecclesia? 
my argument was when I gave the tour is if you step back and you looked up, it's Michelangelo's dome. Michelangelo's dome, which comes before the Baldacchino, but still is in relationship to Bernini came after Michelangelo. Uh, it took 120 years to build this church. And, and at different times of the day, you're going to see different colors. But this one highlights what I've always seen is the blue in the dome. There's a lot of gold, there's a lot of blue, because it's sort of like heaven. Blue also the Marian. So I said, imagine Peter is here, and the dome is Mary's mantle wrapped around Peter. So you can imagine Peter holding the keys, and Mary, the mantle... The church of love wraps the church of authority. The feminine wraps around the masculine. The marrying authority of love over the petrine authority of the keys, of office. And it's not, oh, we just need love and get rid of Peter. No. Peter and Mary have to be seen in relationship to each other. So what John Paul II talks about in Muley Zutatum I think we could see sort of really symbolized here in the church. But there's another detail that most people who go to St. Peter's never see. I'm going to explain it to y'all. So the Baldacchino, you have the four um, sort of uh, pillars that were based off of the original pillars in Constantine's Basilica, which still exist in the new basilica. They're up at the top where the four relics are. But at the base of the Baldacchino, on the, where the four uh, pillars are, the four columns, they have the symbol of uh, Pope Urban, the eighth, who was the pope who basically paid for this beautiful Baldacchino. Uh, and then you have these different bees, um, these, <laughs> these bees, uh, which he was a Barberini. But in there, and this is like the, the herald that said each of them, if you pay attention at, at the top of the crest, at the top of the, the, the herald, there's a face. There's a face. And it's the face of a woman. And story goes that whenever Bernini was uh, doing the, the Baldacchino and Urban got him to do it, Urban's niece was pregnant. Back in the day, of course, pregnancy, there was a high infant mortality rate. So prayed that the, 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 the child would be born successfully. And it was. And so Bernini took the commission and, 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 and basically said, Urban VIII told Bernini, I want you to incorporate this as sort of a gift of thanksgiving. So he did. And it really it was fun because you could walk around it and see it. And, and I'm going to show it to you all in one situation here today. You have the face of the niece, supposedly, and planted there. And as you walk around, she is going through her labor pains. Her face changes until the end, you come to the face of a cute little baby. So you see these are the faces. Why is it she's going through her labor pains until the end the child comes forth? Now, that's a nice little trivia thing there. But it also highlights what I'm trying to talk about. The Marian, the church is, Marian, the church is mother. The church is our mother. The church is feminine. And that little, small, little detail, I think, at least from my perspective, um, communicates that. Uh, 
Does that make sense? And, and I always found it just so effective. People would come and start crying and love the church. Then I tell them something else, which we'll talk about next time, which made them get angry at me and leave. But that's different. So this is, again, I don't know, fellas. I just think this is so important because the problem that we have is an ecclesial problem. And I'm not saying that just if you explain this to people, it will make sense. But the spousal analogy is important not only for us to understand sexual ethics, it's also there to help us understand ecclesiology. And so how do you connect this to sexual ethics? That the rules are not just arbitrary. They're not there from a bunch of men trying to make you miserable. They're given by the mother, our mother, the church, who's there to communicate the truth. The mother, mater et magistra, the mother and teacher, gives us the interpretation of the law. She gives us the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. She does. Huh? <laughs> she makes it more acceptable. And, that it's, and so in, in a world that does need to understand masculine authority, but is more open to feminine authority, and again... We, we, we kind of talked about that, that, that this is how the truth is communicated. And so if more people kind of had that Marian devotion, and I generally find people who have Marian devotions uh, end up sort of, sort of changing hearts, an ability to change that. But the, what I, 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 yes, did you have a, a quote or not a, quote, a comment? I think we can we can we can make it we can make it come together. All that we're talking about, though, in this final quote from John Paul II, and it's the one that I've been talking about. It's from Mulier's Tatin number 25, and how it can apply to our own lives, specifically as a bunch of men, masculine men, who will go on to represent Christ of the Church and represent that apostolic masculine authority, is that as much as we say, here's Mass, Mary and here's Peter, no, they actually come together. John Paul II says, from a linguistic viewpoint, we can say that the analogy of spousal love found in the letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 5, links what is masculine to what is feminine. Since, as members of the church, men too are included in the concept of bride. Because you're, because the church is feminine, and you're a man, you're a member of the church, somehow the masculine and feminine connect. This should not surprise us, for St. Paul, in order to express his mission in Christ and in the church, speaks of the little children with whom he is again in travail. And the spirit of what is human, of what is humanly personal, masculinity and femininity are distinct, yet at the same time they complete and explain each other. This is also present in the great analogy of the bride and the letter of the Ephesians. In the church, every human being, male and female, is the bride. And that he or she accepts the gift of love of Christ the Redeemer and seeks to respond to it with the gift of his or own, per, own person. John Paul II, also in his first letter to priests, mentions the maternal characteristics of the Holy Thursday letter in 78 of the priest. And so, yeah, insofar as that we are members of the church and we are receptive of God's grace, we have that feminine receptive dimension. 
It's an act of receptivity. We're participating in it. But I think it shows the importance of what balances a proper masculinity and what I think makes a good priest. The priest is the one, or the man is the one who has a strong, real Marian devotion. But not just Marian devotion that you pray the rosary. I think that's all great. I love to pray the rosary. But to actually have a Marian heart. Jesus and Mary, Jesus and Joseph had Marian devotions, but they just didn't say, Mary, why don't you just sit there while we pray the rosary? We're going to look at you. (laughs) No. Mary formed the hearts of Jesus and Joseph. Particularly Jesus, was, his heart comes totally from Mary's heart. I mean, the DNA. Joseph and Jesus both had Marian hearts. And so if you want to see how Mary would have loved, you look how Jesus would have loved or Joseph would have loved. So I think it's the same thing. Priests ought to not just have Marian devotions, but have Marian hearts that are receptive, that are compassionate, that are tender, that are strong. Um, and this is where, in particularly masculinity, in Peter... Mary and, and Peter come together. I always that scene from the, from Passion of the Christ was so beautiful when Peter, filled with his shame after denying Christ, comes to Mary, and Mary wants to receive him, but Peter can't do it, can't do it. And to think how Mary, the queen of the apostles, she formed the apostles after Jesus left. She was there, receiving them, caring for them, and I think that, that show the chosen really shows that. Um, but it's something that we need to consider uh, of what that exactly means. Marian dimension, to have a genuine devotion to Our Lady. So, th- this is all where we're going to end this look at the section of anthropology, and particularly focusing on man and woman, masculine and femininity, sexual difference. But we're going to come back to the spousal analogy. We're going to come back to the great mystery. Uh, but we're going to move next to the section on sex, what is sex? What is the purpose of sex? The marital act, chastity, and lust. So it's kind of the next section, sort of, the theology of the body. I've already recorded the Friday's lesson, which I'll upload tomorrow, and I hope to record the lesson that we missed. And so by the time we come back Monday, we'll totally be caught up and we'll be ready to roll. So now that we established a lot of the worldview, we established anthropology, it's time to get into looking at the acts themselves. Uh, we're going to look at that a lot more uh, in this section. Then we're going to look at marriage, because you can't understand sexuality unless you understand marriage and the offenses against marriage. And then finally, those bigger issues. So why don't we close? Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.